Uh, one of my favorite things in the world are nominums, words that are their own opposite. And most of those words are either shipping related or finance related. Uh, so an example of a word that means its own opposite. Um, sanction is a great word. So if, a, if North Korea starts doing what it's doing, it's launching ballistic missiles over the ocean. We, we institute sanctions on that on country. If Russia invades Ukraine, we sanction them. But if we decide that we're all going to go to the Olympics, we sanction that event. So sanction can mean we don't like and it can mean we like. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. This is the second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach, and I'm under great obligation to speak like this for the intro because my father was an ancient DJ. And now I can go back to my normal voice. Um, he really likes it when I use my DJ voice, which I've never been a DJ, so I don't really have one. Um, I do know how to say... Sunday, 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 but it's Saturday, so that doesn't really fit. This is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we're back, and I've got some uh, question or two hanging out there for me uh, from the listeners. Uh, the uh, subject so far this episode has been really centralized on banking, and we've got some more questions on that, and then I want to swing out to what's going on. What happened with oil? What's going on there? Uh, oil prices dropping by 13% in a week is uh, phenomenal, and it's not really on the front page with the, with the bank stuff going on. So Steve has a question out here. Uh, I heard a commentator say that if the bank had hedged its portfolio against its balance sheet, things might have turned out differently. Does this comment make sense to you? If so, please explain. Thank you. Well, thank you, Steve. It's a good question. What does that even mean? What does hedging mean? It is a very versatile word. Uh, originally, it meant uh, to separate properties because instead of a fence, you would use a hedge in, in the ancient Europe uh, system. So you would hedge your property from someone else's. It would prevent the cattle from leaving. It's fencing. Okay. What does that mean when you're talking about a portfolio? It can mean a lot of stuff, unfortunately. It's really easy to use it and be correct in using it because it means so many things. It originally meant prevent loss and probably gains in a portfolio by selling and buying options in a, in a way that would allow you to reap a little bit of profit uh, in the event that the market doesn't really move. So you get a little bit of money from, from selling options and buying options to prevent your money from jumping up and down. Well, over time, that became, a, well, how do we get profit all the time? So you got these companies that start saying we're true alpha or alpha only. Well, what is that? And they're, they're saying they only make good returns. Well, that's kind of silly. There's no such thing as only ever making good returns in the market because you can't always, that's like Madoff stuff. And what people have found is that kind of hedge uh, doesn't work anymore uh, than what it should. So why do we still have hedge funds? Because they don't claim to hedge your stuff anymore. What does this have to do when it comes to a balance sheet at a bank? Well, now it's coming back to that original meaning again. Uh, the commentator said 
that if the bank had hedged its portfolio against its balance sheet, things might have turned out differently. What could that mean? Here's a really simple way of looking at it. If you know your depositors, you're a bank, you're a big bank, so put yourself in, I don't know, the the father in Mary Poppins's shoes and, and have that, cheerio, oh, there you are, stiff upper lip, all that. Um, you're sitting in, the, in here and... Uh, you have a bunch of uh, oil tycoons as your depositors. And you know that because you have high-class meetings in your office where uh, there's much uh, standing and looking dignified with each other and shaking hands and sitting down and standing up and shaking hands again. Well, this is very true. There's a social context of big depositors at banks. You know who they are if you're the bank manager. Okay, if they're all big oil tycoons, what's pretty normal in safe bake management is to say, I should probably diversify the um, depositors a little bit. Because if there's a crunch in the banking industry, there's not going to be more deposits coming in. The withdrawals are going to continue going out. And the loans that I've given to my customers that are also my depositors might not get paid as well or as on time. So these oil tycoons, these oil barons may not pay you back if, if the oil companies all go bust at the same time. Well, when, the, when could that ever happen? And then, yeah, <laughs> lots of times. So safe banking is knowing who your depositors are. And if they had looked at their depositors and said, hey, we've got a bunch of venture capital here, Anywhere from 60 to 80% of its deposits were venture capital money. What does that mean? It also means that they weren't insured deposits. If a big venture capital company wants to put some money somewhere, it's a lot of money, so it's way above the $250,000 FDIC limit. If they want to drop $30 million into their bank account, it's in essence uninsured. They may buy extra insurance somewhere in the event of bank failure, but a lot of venture capitalists just don't do that. They don't, they don't want to spend the money on buying insurance when they're already having trouble making any interest whatsoever on their bank account. So they're honest to goodness afraid of bank collapses more than you are, and most people are because you can balance out your – if you got a million dollars in the bank and you're married, you can – um, change the way your registration, you got a single account for your wife and a single account for your husband and then a joint account. Well, that's $750,000 of coverage. You got to read the fine print. Please don't just take that example as the only way it goes. That's good coverage at a bank. Well, then you could just have another bank account at another bank for two. You've got it all covered. What do you do when you have $30 million? Well, now you got to have a lot of banks. Oh, that doesn't work really well if you're trying to do payroll or you want to write one check to make a big purchase for a company. So there's other ways of putting the money away with different kinds of insurance. They're not as good as FDIC because that's backed by the government. They can just dump huge amounts of money in it. But there's other insurance you can buy on banks. And oddly enough, it's often called bonding uh, which is hilarious because the bond is actually the loan of money, but then you bond the bond. Double bonded. It's like glue. Why is it called crazy glue anyway? That's really what you want it to do. When you stick things together and they stick, you don't say, whoa, that's crazy. No, that's exactly what... Anyway, I'm sorry. Side note. Um, back to balance sheet and hedging. When the venture all left at the same time, if that bank had diversified its depositor base to a lot broader community than venture. 
it was very niche. It would have staved off a lot of its uh, threat, even if it's the even if it's portfolio underneath that long term bond stuff. Even if it still held all that stuff, it'd still be at a lot less risk if it wasn't concentrated with one major group of depositors. Because if that group has something happen in their industry, which is happening right now, they're more likely all to move at the same time or to impact the loans of that bank in a negative way. There's a lot of things that are wrong with that. And one of the things that the big stress tests do is check for that. And last hour, I said this big stress tests were taken away from this size of bank in 2018. When we talked about that law being passed in 2018, we were saying, yeah, it's probably going to increase the efficiency of the banking world, but we're losing some of our safety net. That just means we have to be ready to step in when a bank fails. Well, that's what's happened. And a lot of people are calling this a bailout of these big tycoons. But the reality is that if you owned stock in SVB, if you were one of the shareholders, you lost 100% of your investment. It's gone. They may get something back in bankruptcy, but you know if it's going to be painful. So nobody's getting bailed out here except for the depositors. The bank itself is not being bailed out. It's in receivership. It is bankrupt. And when you say bank and bankrupt, that's, yes, it's broken. It is no longer a bank. It, it, it <laughs> freely leaks its contents. So that's the result to the people that made these bad decisions is they're really going to have a hard time getting hired at another bank. If they've made their career as a banker and they led their ship into the rocks, no other banker is going to say, yeah, yeah, I want you and my team right now. It's going to be hard. This is like what happened at Arthur Anderson or at Enron. People say they got a big bailout because the government came in and stepped in or General Motors, the government stepped in and bailed them. No, they didn't. They got bankrupted. The Shareholders lost all their money. Uh, did public money get used in the process? Yes. But each of those cases in the bankruptcy, the federal government made a profit on the bankruptcy. And much of the money did eventually come back to the shareholders just at a great loss. So there wasn't a bank bailout here. The balance sheet could have been hedged by just changing who the loans were going to. And what does that mean? Um, if they had taken the portfolio and said, we're going we're gonna to hedge this and we're going to spread it across from the two-month to the 10-year with a lot more being in the short term, um, then people would have said, oh, that, 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 yeah, that's very hedged. But then they wouldn't have been able to give the interest rates that they were giving to their depositors. One of the big draws at SVB was they were going to pay like 2% to the depositors at a time when 2% was astronomically high. Who Nobody can get 2%. How are they getting 2%? Well, they were getting it by dumping their deposited money into much longer-term maturities. And those are hard to liquidate when people come and want their money today. They had the reserve requirement. They had more than 20% liquid and ready for depositors. But they had more than a 20% withdrawal that took place. And when I say a large portion of their business was venture. If their reserve requirement is 20%, what does that mean? They have to have 20% of the deposits just waiting for people if they want it. But the one chunk of their customer base 
represents 60% of their deposits, you probably want to have a 60% of your deposit reserve because if they all left at once, you would at least not have to shut your doors. So that's what it means. And anytime you just want to sound erudite, just start talking hedging because you can you, you can throw it out in a bunch of different settings with different med- meanings and it could be any of them. Uh, I'm, I'm obviously a bit of a nerd or I wouldn't be having fun telling you stuff about this. It's kind of like the financial term for rent. Um, I'm renting my house. Well, what does that mean? It could mean that you own the house and you're renting it to someone, or it could mean that you're renting the house and you're renting it from someone. <laughs> so you're, uh, what do you do? Well, how, how is it that your houses are handled? Well, I, I rent them. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I rent them. What is that? You getting money? You giving money? There's a lot of words like that in finance, and it gets really, really difficult. The word bi-monthly, which comes out in contracts in the financial word all the time, has two meanings, and they're equally held. Bi-monthly means twice a month, and it also means every two months. So anybody that thinks that the financial system has got their act together and we, you know, Wall Street knows what's going on or the academics of economics and we just have this stuff on. No, we, there's, we don't even agree on what words mean. Uh, and the words that we agree on can mean different things in slightly different context. And by the slightly different, you can completely miss the context shift even when you're a professional using those words. Uh, we need a little bit more words in our <laughs> in our language. Uh, it's just interesting. Uh, one of my favorite things in the world are nominums, words that are their own opposite. And most of those words are either shipping related or finance related. Uh, so an example of a word that means its own opposite. Um, sanction is a great word. So if a, if North Korea starts doing what it's doing. It's launching ballistic missiles over the ocean. We, we institute sanctions on that com- on country. Russia invades Ukraine. We sanction them. But if we decide that we're all going to go to the Olympics, we sanction that event. So sanction can mean we don't like, and it can mean we like. There's a great you know, little article in the Wall Street Journal about how the price of childcare is preventing people from coming back into the workplace. Well, yeah, because the prices went up. Well, what does that mean? Well, in order to come back to the workplace, the other employers that want you to come back have to pay you more so you can pay for child support. Not child support in the divorce sense, but actually supporting the child. This is important. You've got these concepts that are here that are always here. That's an inflationary spiral. Well, now Chinese companies are pumping out more stuff. The economy in China is opening back up. They're having issues on the pandemic side um, that are not reported at the moment because we've got other stuff going on here and people don't care. I don't, I don't really understand it, but they've, they've got issues over there with the pandemic, still big ones, but their businesses are coming back out and they're going to start flourishing. And that's going to bring down prices. The oil prices are coming down. What is that from? Well, I can tell you a couple of pieces of that. The way that we're shipping goods has changed. The Port of Los Angeles in the United States was the number one uh, incoming import port for the United States, period. It was way ahead of the others. 
It's now number three. There are, there's over in New York and New Jersey is number one. And then you come back just south of Los Angeles and you've got another one. And then you've got Los Angeles. Well, what happened there? Well, when we had a line of ships, hundreds, hundreds long, with a waiting list three months to get into the port, we had to develop other ports. But we have all of these infrastructure plans at the corporate level of how trucks get to the port of Los Angeles so that they can take their stuff from there to Walmart or from there to Walmart in Arkansas. Well, now we're remapping all of that. And what's interesting is because there's more big ports, it doesn't have to be moved as far. This is a better system. And we're not stopping that. It's a better system. So the price of getting it from the port to the place where you buy it is coming down. At the same time, we've got some massive uptick in the amount of oil that is being produced in the United States while the rest of the world is cutting back on how much oil they consume because they were on the uh, the pipeline from Russia that isn't turned on anymore in combination between sabotage and diplomacy where the Russians don't want to do it and the Europeans don't want to take it. And then price caps from the Europeans on who can have insurance on their ships for selling the oil. Can't go above $60 a barrel. Okay, that's going to bring down the prices. But at the same time, supply is important. If Russia's out of the oil industry, where's all the oil coming from? Well, from the United States. The United States has gone way up on the production spectrum. It's pumping out. Now, it happened slowly. It was a slow event over the last year to bring production up. But our inventories are getting full again. Even though we're shipping out all this stuff to Europe, even though we're in the process of building more ships to ship more to Europe, our inventories are growing because we can't pump it out and ship it as fast as, as we are pumping it out of the ground. So the number of ships out there is constraining how the, the flow goes. We're getting more inventory here. Our prices are dropping. The prices in Europe are dropping. What does that do for Texas? Texas has been going with a great deal of growth uh, in the economy of Texas directly from the oil boom that's taken place since the invasion of Ukraine. Also from the corn boom and the wheat boom. There's a lot of that going on. But a lot of countries are now turning to the missing things. Last year, they were growing radishes early in the year, and they looked up and the grain supplies got cut off. And they go, whoa, in the United States, we were still growing grain. And those of you that were listening back in February when the invasion took place, and I was saying, hey, now's a good time to change your plans if you're planting right now get corn and wheat in the ground. Um, start out and checking your oil fields because this is classic. One thing that is always throughout history without fail bound to create inflation. And you don't say that always without history, without in, throughout history, without fail randomly. Wars make inflation. Why? Because there's less people in the workforce and more people fighting at the basic sense the production that they were doing is removed from the economy, which means those people that have the ability to buy it will spend more for it, which makes some people not be able to afford it. 
and they want to. So scarcity is introduced. That causes inflation. And when it affects something like oil, which is one of the fundamental building blocks of most of the other productions, it causes inflation elsewhere as well. And when it's a major war, it causes inflation to go across huge parts of the economy. And if you do that at the same time that the major producer in the world, China, for much of of the world, they are the number one importer. And they shut down. And they stayed shut down. Or at least at 70 to 80% of their production capacity in the past for three years. This causes inflation. And this is why you see inflation in Germany that didn't have the great stimuluses that we had under the Trump administration and the Biden administration during the pandemic. They still have runaway inflation over there. It's really close to the 10% mark and we're down in the 6% mark. Now that's not great. It's a lot higher than we want it to be, but month over month, we're seeing better numbers. We're seeing returns back to where we were. And when we see this other stuff opening up, Inflation isn't beat yet. The Federal Reserve is likely to keep raising interest rates. That means that we may see more bank failures for this reason. I don't think we will, but we may. Why do I say I don't think we will? Because at the end of last hour, I told you that $300 billion was just added in the last week to the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. To give some context there, since July of last year, well, yeah, the Federal Reserve has been, well, July of 2021, I'm saying last year still, um, the Federal Reserve has been ratcheting up interest rates. And at the same time, they stopped buying bonds on the market and started selling them. Well, how many were they selling? $30 billion a month of U.S. Treasuries and $30 billion a month of mortgage-backed securities. What does that do? Well, it tends to cause the interest rates to go up because if you're trying to sell back your loans. There's less money available to make new loans. If you're not giving out new loans, if you're not buying up those bonds as they're being issued, instead you're selling them, there's less money out there to make loans with. That causes interest rates to go up at the same time that they're raising interest rates that they charge banks. So the balance sheet this last week going up $300 billion. Well, when was the last time that happened? Well, it happened in April of 2020, when we put about a trillion dollars extra on the books for the Federal Reserve when the pandemic hit. So the Federal Reserve's response in this last week has been on par with that. If they spread it over the next four weeks, it would be more than what they dumped into the market during the crash of the pandemic. What does that mean? Well, that's money to back up the FDIC. It's money to bring down interest rates in that shorter term spectrum. And what we're seeing is a massive drop in interest rates in that area. Uh, massive drop in interest rates in, in the areas that, oh, I'll, I'll bring up this chart. Uh, it, it is worth the time it takes for me to click over here and, and, and look at it. Um, the Department of Treasury... Um, posts a daily treasury par yield curve rates. And that's where we go to look to see what these interest rates are. Since the beginning of March, 30-year treasuries have gone from just below 4% to 3.6%. And 10 years have gone from 4% to 3.4% or 3.39%. Well, that's a huge drop. That That's like more than half a percentage point drop in 
two weeks. Well, what is that from? When did that occur? Well, it was still going up at the beginning of the month. We were still right at uh, 4%, just, just on 4% on the 8th of March. Well, that's 10 days ago. Well, we'll come down a little bit from the next day. And then we see this precipitous drop since then of a massive amount, a huge percentage drop between uh, a week ago and now. Well, what is that? We're seeing at the same time the Federal Reserve's taking on a bunch more stuff on its balance book, on its balance sheet. It's buying 10-year bonds. Well, do you know anybody whose portfolio is at risk because they have too many 10-year bonds? Well, this is SVB. This is, these are the other banks. So the Federal Reserve is stepping in and saying, hey, this is going to be worth $10,000 at maturity. That doesn't make any sense for this bank to fail because it doesn't have any money when it's got an asset that's worth $10,000 at maturity. So they go in and they buy it. They may be buying it from the FDIC. They might be buying it from the receivership of SVB. But how do you think that you make a depositor whole? They get all their money back without money to back that up because this is the same assets. Well, it's because the Federal Reserve just dumped a bunch of money into the market and stopped selling into the market. They stopped selling the bonds into the market. That sucks money out of it. So, whoa, that's a big move. That's why I don't think that we're going to have a lot more bank failures. Uh, First Republic just got short up with $30 billion, which was from a consortium of banks. Those banks are likely getting a loan from the Federal Reserve at the same time. The FDIC is likely getting loans from the Federal Reserve at the same time at very low interest rates because that's this is what the Federal Reserve is for. It is called the lender of last resort for exactly this reason because this is what prevents the dominoes from keep falling. If you push that tiny little domino at the front, it's not too big to fail. But eventually, if people just get nervous about everything, they start taking money out of banks everywhere. Uh, and that's the self-fulfilling prophecy. There is a a judge that wrote an opinion a few years back about why it is that bankers have to be so sensitive and any rumor of a bank failure, there's no other industry where this would, it, it's because money is only belief. That's all it is. It's our combined belief that it's worth something. Inflation happens because we believe in inflation will happen sometimes. Sometimes it happens just because there's not enough stuff to go around. But if you ever get in the habit of just expecting to pay more every time you go to pay, that's when inflation takes on the uh, philosophical or spiritual presence of its own thing that's just based in belief. It's weird, strange that all of us can believe inflation into permanency. If we continue to say, hey, this is going to be under control, look, we've got good results happening, people don't panic. Panic with money is always bad. There's never a time when panic with money is a good thing. It really, there's never a time. I mean, you might have good results by being the first one out the door, but panic is not a good thing when it comes to money. It doesn't, it doesn't flow. One of the jobs of the Federal Reserve, it's, it's got some big ones, but they go back to the Federal Reserve Act. The first jobs it was given was to control the value of the currency so we don't have runaway inflation or deflation. It tries. The other thing, the more important thing, the number one thing that that is often forgotten 
is to make sure that the, the banking system remains stable. Their job is to come in and close the doors of the bank, but then tell everybody, hey, we got your money. Just give us a second. We're going to figure this out. These guys, these clowns in here didn't know what they were doing. Well, the clowns may not have had clown makeup on until the bank failed. Uh, and that's true all the time. They may have been perfectly rational in all their approach, but then the bank failure comes from too many people wanting their money out. And that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're no longer geniuses. Now they are morons. And uh, when we talk about a big shift in interest rates that can cause that at the beginning of the month of March, the six-month bill at the treasury level was trading with a 5.2% interest rate on it. It's now trading at 4.7%. This is just two weeks later. Well, what's the big difference? There's a lot more money available to be to loan out. The Federal Reserve is making money available to loan. And when that happens, there's competition, which means that you don't have to take the first interest rate you find. You can find a lower one. So that competition allows the price, the, the interest rate to drop on these things. There you go. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this in, on this station, fourteen hundred AM in Temple, since nineteen ninety six, we've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it, so we've been doing this a long, long time. And the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice 
based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.